Hello there. This is Temperance. Welcome to my podcast, my first Chinese friend. In this episode, I invited my friend Choi to share his early stage China experience, the story of his first Chinese friend, and business insight from over two decades of real business engagement across different sectors. Choi came to China the first time in 1989. He had witnessed. The rapid changes happening in the past thirty years. When I shared with you, I want to have a podcast called "My First Chinese Friend." How did you think of this? Honestly, I just thought, "God, another podcast." <laughs> this. Tens of thousands of them.、Um, I'm sure there's a lot of good ones. I just tend not to listen to podcasts very often myself. I tend to read a lot. Then, what made you agree to come and share some of your stories? Because you're my friend, and I would help want to help you out. Wow, thank you. That's so nice of you. So, can you share with us a little bit of your? China story, like when did you come to China the first time, and what did you do here?、Mm, okay, China the first time. I was in Australia. I was studying traditional Chinese boxing, so Xing Yichuan, Ba Guajiang, and one of the guys I was training with said, "Hey, I'm going to China," and I was like, "Wow, you can do that!" <laughs> so. It kind of interests me, and I was keen on the boxing. I've always done some kind of martial arts training for many, many years, and I said to him, "If I can get my visa and things organised, can I come along with you? Is that okay?" And he said, "That's fine, but I'm going in three weeks, and it took me six months to get my things organised." I said, "Okay, fair enough, but if I can get organised, can I go?" And he said. Yeah, sure. So I went and did all the medicals and applied for the, the paperwork, and I got a visa, and I quit my job, and I told my girlfriend I'm going to China, and everyone's going, you know, where, what? And I said I'm going to Beijing. I didn't even really know much about it. So let's pause here. When when was that? That was 1989. It was a very interesting time. We got there. There was two main hotels that. Foreigners could stay at backpacking, and I really liked it. I enjoyed it. It was a completely different world, absolutely very, very different from anything I'd seen before. And people were cool,、um, and it was fun, and it was kind of chaotic, and it was very difficult. We didn't speak any Chinese whatsoever. <laughs> I know you spent quite a lot of time in China. Uh, after that, so what happened after a first visit? I was back with my girlfriend to China within about three months, I think. So it was very early 1990. Went straight back. Wow! What attracts you to come back, though? Because it was fun. <laughs> it was very different.、Uh, people were cool. The environment was. Kind of bubbling along, and just things were sort of starting to happen. The culture was interesting. It wasn't what I was expecting, that's for sure. This is a long time ago, 
So a lot of traditional Chinese culture hadn't re-emerged, but there was little touches of it here and there. And I got tastes of it because I was training with some very old dudes in parks like Purple Bamboo Park and down the south in Taronting Park. And there was like the patriarch of the style of martial arts that we were training was Li Ziming. He was very, very old, but he lived in this very cool hutong. Went to visit him a couple of times, went out to the tombs on tomb sweeping day to celebrate Tung Hai Chuan's um, tomb clean and pay our respects there. And it was just very interesting. I don't know how other how uh, any other way to describe it. It was like exploring a whole new culture. And it wasn't the culture that I had read about. You could sit down with people on the street, have a beer, some young char, smoke some cigarettes and have a good laugh. It was friendly and sociable. There was no fighting for status or you know, money didn't really matter that much. Even if you had a lot of money, it didn't make much. You, you needed ration cards from your Danway to spend it. So who cared? No one cared. Right. It sounds like it was so different from everything you had around you back then. And how long did you stay here? Uh, well, it's hard to say because I keep going and coming back and going and coming back. So I've probably spent about 20 plus years in China. We spent another a couple of years when we went back. So 1990 through the end of 91. So what else did you do here? Well, interestingly enough, we came across these guys that were selling Trans-Siberian train tickets. We worked with them and we were selling Trans-Siberian train tickets from Beijing through to Moscow. Back then, things were not that organized. So you could buy a ticket for the Trans-Siberian, but it was useless without booking at CYTS or CTS. But to get the booking, you had to go down three months to the day in advance, the train going, take your ticket and then make your reservation. And then your ticket would be stamped. And then three months later on that day, you could get on the train. Not many backpackers were going to come to China, go up to Beijing, buy a ticket, make a reservation, then travel around China for three months and then come back and leave on the train. It just wasn't useful for them. But we stayed in Beijing, reserved them. So then they could come to us and we could sell them and they could get on the train next week. It's just so different experience comparing with what we have now. When you came to China the first time, I didn't even exist on this planet of Earth. You know, foreigners didn't use renminbi, we used FEC, which was money for backpackers or travelers there. There was no sort of foreign products, if you like. There was one store in Beijing that sold things like milk and cheese and bread and foreign televisions. And that was Yi Shandian, the friendship store. And things were very cheap back then. Four or five of us would go for uh, go to the restaurant and we'd order lots of food, maybe 12, 13 plates of food, and it would cost us 10 to 20 renminbi. I want to try this. I don't know if this is doable. Can we use three keywords to summarize your overall 20 years of experience here? Yes, that's a bit reductionist, isn't it? (laughs) 
25 years spread over a 30 year period and labeling it by three words is pretty tough. Um, fun, <laughs> for sure. Chaotic learning. So from about 2000 through to 2015, it was spent building a business. We're in the rag trade. Originally we were traders. So we started a trading business. I was back in Australia. We were trading in Australia. My good friend, Wong Jen, who was pretty much my first friend in China. I said, it's not working. And he said, well, help me up in China, figure it out. So, okay. So we moved up there, started figuring things out. And we built a business based off trading. And then we were doing clothing manufacturing. So we were exporting to Poland, Russia, America, France, Germany, some a little bit to the UK, Holland, lots and lots of production. We bought our own or we built our own retail. So we had 48 stores in nine provinces and about 150 franchisees. We had three of our own factories. We had an import division. We had um, a stock, stock lock division. We had an investment arm that we uh, used for short-term investments in other businesses like ice and snow, construction, KTV, bars, restaurants. I think this is a very interesting story. I set up this podcast called My First Chinese Friend. Your first Chinese friend is also your business partner. What's your definition of friendship? Good question. I haven't really tried to define friendship. My father used to say there's no such thing as friends. I didn't think that was a very good def definition. I think most people are or could be friends if you get to know them well enough. We just don't have enough time to do it like that. So I suppose friends are ones that may be people that you can communicate well with that will challenge you on your thinking but still support you in what you're trying to do. How did you meet him? I think I met Wong in 89 the first time, but the second time met him, I, it was either at the Pink House or the Great Wall International Friends Bar and Meeting House, <laughs> both of which were very small restaurants that were just set up on the side of the street out in front of the Backpacker Hotel. And out the front of the hotel was a taxi dispatch office where the taxis would get directed in. Wong worked there in the taxi office. He taught himself to speak English and he was having the beers and practicing. But he was very sharp and very quick and very funny. A big laugh. He was very cheeky. How did you start the first conversation? He came to you and started to talk and try to practice his uh, English. He's no, he wasn't that stupid. You know, he never was someone that would go, can I practice my English? No, nah, he would be like, hey, go on, Troy. And I was like, I didn't know how he even knew my name. Maybe I'd been drinking the night before and he'd heard my name and remembered it and then just said, you know, just asked me by name the next day. But he was smart that way. So I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, I'm doing okay. Um, and I'm thinking that somehow we knew each other. <laughs> so we just started having a conversation. Many of our listeners, they might not know, sometimes when you are traveling in China, for example, like when you are on the Great Wall, you might get stopped by people and try to take a photo with you 
families from other provinces, they will encourage their children to come to you and say a few English words. Well, this is still happening. Yeah, it happens a lot. You know, it's just born out of keenness and a little bit of naivety. But Wong wasn't really that naive in that sense. He had good interpersonal skills. Right. So, how did you and him become business partner in like a decade? We socialized a lot. We spent a lot of time together,、uh, right from the very early days. And then Wong started.、Uh, it's a long story about how Wong got involved in his business and stuff. But we're doing our thing, and he was doing his, and we ate and drank and did a lot of social activities together over the course of years. Even when we weren't in China, we always kept in touch by messages or by fax or by letters, because nobody really had the internet back then, and cell phones weren't available. And I can still remember going on the bike ride up to the big telegraph office on Jiangguomen, I think it was, and standing in a queue getting a number that was like, you know. Two hundred and fifty-six thousand and two, and you would wait all day, and then you'd go and send a telegram to somebody. So we just kept in touch. When we went back to China, we socialized again. Wang was the best man at my wedding. That's a very close friend. Then, after years, well, yeah. I mean, part of it was an excuse. To, it was his first. I think it was his second chance. The first time he left China. He was chasing a girlfriend, and he managed to get a visa to France. But the second time was we got him a visa to come to Australia. Back then, you needed some pretty good reasons to be able to get a visa to get out of China to travel. It also enabled some business, and we started business from there. Among so many years, you have been friends with each other. Is there an occasion that Wang did something? I mean, his behavior and or his reaction. Uh, surprise you every day. <laughs> <laughs> Why? That was just Wong.、Um, he was a very intelligent guy. He was extraordinarily patient, and he was ex- in situations where most people would just get sick and tired of it, or they'd run out of patience and they'd get angry or something. Wong would just keep going. He would just keep talking and keep pushing. Figuring out the situation, figuring out how to try and put things right, how to make most people happy, and then keep moving. It sounds like he had an unstoppable life force that keeps driving him to somewhere he wants to be. Stubborn in the sense that he just would persist. He would be adaptable to the situation. He often want, knew what he wanted. Among so many years, what did you learn? About life from him. Well, just being being persistent counts. You know, sticking to what you want to do counts. It's important, and finding a way to get to where you want to go, that's intelligence. From him, I'm also curious to know, like, what did you know or what did you learn about China or our culture or Chinese people? Well, I learned a lot of things from Wong about people and about China. He used to tease me because I had more of a understanding of Chinese history, and he thought that was funny that I would recall things from dynasties than cultural artifacts that were not really taught in China. 
he was more of a modern day man of his man of the his times, right? So the history wasn't important to people in that era. There was a specific kind of view that is pretty okay, but he was a very transactional in the moment kind of person. And he used to laugh. He'd say, "You foreigners complain about how Chinese treat you. You wait until you see how Chinese treat each other." You know, he says they're being nice to you. We're being nice to you, which was always kind of interesting because, in a lot of ways, that was true. Chinese struggle very hard. If you're close, you're close, and even if you're close, there's still a struggle. You know, he taught me how noisy China can be for Chinese. He says in China. Sometimes it's refreshing to hang out with foreigners because they're not in your face telling you what you should be doing with your life. You go back home, mum's asking why you don't have a girlfriend or you're not married or you don't. If you're married, why don't you have kids? And dad's telling you how to run the business. Dad's never run a business, but he's still telling you. The uncles and the aunties are all piling in about the same things, and you're sitting there just trying to get along. Often you're talking to the family and telling them things they want to hear, not the things that are actually going on. This is so interesting because after let's say twenty or thirty years, this is still the situation that many millennials they are facing when they go back home for Chinese New Year. Exact same conversation. Yes, China is a very noisy place for Chinese. What does that mean? In your understanding, this noisy place for Chinese people. Noisy means lots and lots of people telling you at the same time what you should be doing. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's pretty happy to tell you their opinion. Gee, you look fat. Golly, why don't you make more money? Why aren't you married? Geez, your kids aren't very smart. They're not going to the good schools. The why is your business not? You know that kind of conversation. Doesn't happen in the West in the same way, but in China, everyone feels free to just jump in and start saying, <laughs> and it's like, wow, cool, right? So it, it's kind of like in the early days, the questions in the West, telling someone they're fat is very rude. Asking someone their salary is rude. Asking personal details if you don't know that person, rude. It's not polite. It's not part of the, the you know the Anglo-Saxon Judeo-Christian culture. China, telling someone they're fat is actually okay. It's fine. Asking what kind of money someone's making also fine, right? Digging into the details, fine. <laughs> it's part of the China culture, but it's a bit of a shock. And Wong used to say, for him, it was a shock, surrounded by foreigners or with foreigners, that they. Didn't do that. That they didn't ask how much money he was making, or they didn't ask why he wasn't married. They didn't ask why he didn't have kids. So he said it was kind of as kind of quiet. In China, there's lots of things that are done quietly and subtly, but there's also lots of things that are done loud and in your face. And it's、um, getting used to which things those different, where those two different lines are drawn. That's the main difference in culture. We draw lines in the public more often. What else did you learn from this close friend? Wang had some ideas that I totally disagreed with. He had the traditional Chinese boss approach, where the boss is always right. You kind of rule a little bit by fear. 
So the staff were always kind of afraid of the boss. They were very careful, very cautious about speaking. And this is funny because everyone's loud and in your face about things like, you know, your kids and your money and stuff. And they're happy to speak super direct. But then when it's talking to the boss, they would be very cautious about how they talked about what problems were going on or what mistakes might be happening and that kind of stuff. And even if the boss was wrong, it very rarely would someone in the office say, sorry, that's just wrong. There would be a back channel communication or it would be routed through an uncle or a friend of the boss. And then, you know, communications were done quietly, which again was funny because the definition of, I one of my favorite definitions for the difference between China and say, my culture that you know an english culture is the difference between a meeting in a chinese meeting everybody sits there and nods their head and goes yep yeah okay yeah we're agreed fine done and yep and everybody leaves and then later one by one you'll hear the conversation you know they'll come up to you and they'll argue the case oh this is not right nah it's not right and then the next person will come up with a different argument and another person and another person with a meeting meant nothing nobody agreed but everybody agreed in the meeting but privately they all disagreed whereas in a you know more of an english kind of culture the meeting is the place where everybody argues Everybody puts it on the table and says, no, nope, that's not right. No, no, no. And it goes on and on and on until we get to some conclusion. And then everybody says, yeah, good. We got it. And very rarely after the meeting, do you get people coming up discussing why the meeting was wrong? In the meeting is the time for discussing the disagreement, not after. In China, in the meeting is the time for agreeing and after is the time for disagreeing. And because myself also work with people from different regions on different projects and very often I heard a debate between them and even between them and Chinese is can we really trust like Chinese people in business? You have the very early stage experience in China back in the 1990s. How was your business experience here and, and, and how did you interpret the situation you were facing back then? One of the biggest problems, it's not so much trust. I mean, like, well, in business, nobody trusts anybody. That's part of business, but that's what makes business work. It's a bit like the blockchain. <laughs> you have to do what you say you're going to do. Otherwise you can't get anything done. There's very much a short-term culture. And funnily enough, the government thinks in five and 10 year blocks, which is really cool, but businesses are used to regulations changing people disappearing, businesses going out of business, all sorts of other variables start to play in business. So they find it very hard to think about the long-term benefits of uh, taking a hit to continue a relationship. It's more like, I need to get the money that I'm gonna make now. If I'm gonna lose money on this order, what's the chance that I'm gonna get another order from the same person? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And there was a lot of that kind of thinking in okay. the kind of business that we were doing. And also that's changed over the years. When you don't have a lot of something, then you're gonna pile in and do your best to get a bit of that something. For example, if, if there's one bus every hour and there's 200 people, 
then you're going to have to fight to get on that bus or wait another hour or two hours to get on the next bus. You tend to be pretty much looking out for yourself to get on that bus. If there's a bus coming every and it fits 50 people and there's only 100 people still waiting or 200 people waiting, it's not a problem. You can stand there and wait because you know you're not going to have to wait that long. So you change your behavior and you change the attitude. I don't have to fight to get on this bus because there's going to be another bus in five minutes. What are the biggest changes that you have witnessed over the past 30 years? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Goodness me. I mean, oh, come on. You know, China's the kind of place where you would go away and come back and an entire neighborhood would be built. Entire new roads have gone in, new bridges, and you would like, oh, okay. What happened to the shops that were there before? Long gone. That kind of growth is just stunning. The kind of infrastructure that got put in. I can still remember steam trains in China, steam trains, shovel coal into the things. And they had diesel trains, the old green ones. And now they've got a high speed rail that sits 50 meters above the ground. It does 300 kilometers an hour and great big, beautiful, clean, tidy, organized on-time rail system. That kind of change is impressive. You know, when you could sit on the street and drink some Qingdao or Wuxing, uh, you know, some five-star beer. I don't even think they make it anymore. Just smoke and drink and eat. And nobody really gave a toss about money or status because money wasn't that important. Wong was making 40 renminbi a month in 1990. And when, I, when he asked me what I was making per month, he fell off his chair. He did the calculation, translated it from Australian dollars into renminbi, and then calculated from that. And he says, oh, my God. <laughs> I can't imagine the yeah. shock. But also people didn't understand that you paid for everything out of your salary, for your house and you paid for your power and your telephone and your water and your transport and your fuel and your hospital bills and your school bills and everything came out of that salary. His 40 B was his 40 B. The Danway gave him a place to live. The Danway provided him with transport, food, health, all the other things came along with the Danway. Yeah, by the way, that way here is he's is the institution or the state-owned company he worked for. Like the company provides everything. Uh, everything. For- Back then, everything, nearly everything. I don't think there was almost anything. There was a few of these small restaurants and bars around and a few people just making money on the side, maybe at like the silk market and stuff. But everything else was state-owned, everything. There was no private business back then. (laughs) Or there was very, very little. I still remember there was a certain period in China for many boys, when they were little, their dream is to become a driver because they could drive car or trucks. And that that is not only cool, but is a skillful work. I can still remember riding my push bike and millions of people were on push bikes back then. Everybody had their flying pigeon or flying eagle or whatever it was. They're all green, heavy cycles. And that was the main mode of transport. The ring roads, when I got there, they hadn't finished Arhuan Lu. They hadn't even started on Samhuan. The World Trade Center had just gone up. It just opened. Gormel. 
there was no traffic, everybody on bikes. And I can still remember, uh, it was like late 91, or maybe it was a bit later than that, seeing the first family in a car, a private car, a family in a private car out on um, Lu on a Sunday. And I was just, I'm standing there, mouth open, like a, a non pointing at the car going, oh my God, look, <laughs> look. <laughs> But what has changed from those days when, you know, money wasn't important and status really wasn't that important. It was maybe the, your connection and your place in the damn way in your work unit, which was important. 30 years later, everyone's got their fancy Gucci Prada clothes. You know, the dress, absolutely. Look, people would just wear baggy greens and almost nothing fashionable, or if it was kind of fashion, it was frilly stuff that looked like grandma was wearing. And then you switch forward and now Beijing's an extremely fashionable city and people extremely care about whether they got the latest iPhone, whether they got a fancy Maserati or Aston Martin or Bentley, if they're seen in the right bars and the right clubs and the friendships or the people that you meet tend to be a bit more shallow. They're more judgmental about what you have rather than who you are. Because if you don't have the right what, they don't want to know who you are. So if you don't have the right bag and the right watch and the right phone and the right car, you're not telling it, you're not signaling to anybody else that you're actually worth getting to know. And that's probably one of the biggest cultural changes that I've seen. China's gone from a place where there was a lot of scarcity. People didn't have much and they were very literally comradish. And they, they were friendly because they didn't have much material goods but they've drawn back from each other because maybe they're, they're being more selective and protective and picky because the material goods are so important now and what are the major changes appearing in business especially the way how people do business well, i'm not sure if much has really changed in how people do business they work like wolf packs you roam fast. Even if you make mistakes, it doesn't matter. You got to move quick and you eat the opportunities that you can find. You just defined a key uh, mentality that many foreign clients will ask me, how could Chinese startups are moving and reinventing themselves so fast? Because the trust factor in China tends to extend through family lines. If it's not through a family line, then it's through a school, you know, your, your colleagues from school. They form your friendships and they form the pool in which you usually start building your business around. <laughs> now, yeah. it's a joke, but there's a certain amount of truth in it. And not every business is trapped by that. There's a ton of businesses that grow beyond it. And they, they don't have family in there. Wong, for instance didn't believe in putting his family into the business. He didn't need that drama. But there were relationships and family relationships that dragged people into the business, for sure. But uh, general, a general rule, lots and lots and lots of companies in China are family-orientated business, i.e. the father built it or mum built it, the brothers work in it, the, the sons and daughters are executives in it. And it could be quite a large business. It's still very much that that family hierarchy, the paternal, the boss is right. He's the dad, he's the granddad, and everybody listens. A little bit like a mafia setup. What do you think is the reason that motivates them to move so fast? As you just described, it's okay to make mistakes, but you're gonna 
move so fast so that you can keep trying and make it work. You have to. It's just sheer density of other people trying at the same time. If someone spots an opportunity and they don't move quickly, someone else is watching them see that opportunity and they're like watching to see if they pick up that dollar or that renminbi. If they don't, then they're going to pick it up. If they miss the opportunity or they say, for example, temperance sees a, an opportunity and executes and starts picking up renminbi there, China, no problem at all. I'm just going to copy exactly what she did. And before you know it, there's 10 people copying exactly what you did. And then there's 50 people. Everyone's piling in to copy it to see if they can execute and pick up that renminbi. Look at the bike sharing. We started off with what color bike? A green one or a blue one? Green, blue, red, yellow, magenta, three color bikes, 10 color bikes, silver bikes, all sorts of colored bikes. Boom, everybody was doing bike shares. Just sharing a little bit background to the listeners. These are all domestic companies who are trying to get into this bike sharing business. We used to, we used to joke that if they keep growing like this, they will run out of colors to paint their bike. But that's just one example. So China is just a place where people are keen and people have no qualms or they have no problem with it, just copying something that works. And then that gets them a start and then they have to keep building on top of it very quickly and changing direction to keep collecting the money. So then you have to start innovating to keep out in front because right. you've got so many other people chasing the same idea. You've got to zig when they zag and then you've got to zag when they zig. That's where China's innovation comes from. They get an idea, cool, but then that idea doesn't stay the same for very long. You've got to go different directions to keep out in front, and that causes things to speed up really fast. And then you get to a point where you, where you end up with a monopoly. And in China, up until very, very recently, monopolies are fine. Nobody's going to stop you if you're Tencent or Alibaba, if you're Yuku, or you're one of these digital platforms that can expand so they become very, very large and very, very dominant. And then you get it all starting over again. People are trying to find the gaps that have been missed. Now, looking back to our entire China adventure, what did you wish you could know before you arrived China in 1989? Oh, gee. Um, to be honest, I don't think that's a useful question. I think it's more... If you're going to go to China, it's, it's, if you're going to go anywhere, have an open mind. Have an open attitude. Understand that the lens that you look at the world through is not the same lens that other people look through. So don't be one of these people that goes somewhere and says, oh, they're so bloody idiots and they're stupid and they don't know this or they don't know that. That's not the point. They know how to survive in their own environment and they're doing it. And you're coming in from your environment with your own perspective. Put that perspective aside for a bit and try and figure out the perspective of the people that you're there and you're hanging with and what they're trying to do. I think that's the most important thing you need to have in your tool belt before you go visit anywhere, including China. But China is so crazy and so cool and so much fun um, that it's worthwhile putting your lens down and trying to pick up a Chinese lens and figure it out. You have been away from China for a year now, right? Yep. So 
what do you miss the most? The food. <laughs> I miss Chinese food and my friends and, you know, China. The, a place is made up of the geography and the people, and it's the people that make somewhere special, right? I miss China. I miss the people and I miss the food, damn it. <laughs> and I miss going out with my friends and eating a lot of it and enjoying it. If we have some listeners who have never been in China before, what is the one thing you recommend them to do to get some sense of China? If you've got fixed ideas of what you think China is, you're going to be either disappointed, upset, or just wrong. And China is so huge, and there's so many different people there. I honestly think that if you want to understand the place, you can do some reading, but you know, what are you going to read? And what slice of China is that going to give you? And what slice of China are you going to actually visit? It could be two totally different things. You could read a history of Shanghai and end up in Guangzhou. <laughs> yeah. Worlds apart. You could be in Hong Kong or Shenzhen, or you could be in Beijing, or you might be in Gangsu, or you could be in Shandong. Personally, I just think China is so huge, as yourself described, and it's so hard to put some the, Chinese or all the Chinese into one category. The mental model of China as one great big giant country is kind of correct, but it's incorrect. You're better off having a mental model of somewhere like Europe. You've got an Italy and you've got a France and you've got a Germany and you've got a Denmark and you've got an England and you've got a, uh, a France. China is much more like Europe. It speaks one spoken language in terms of Putonghua, and it has one set of characters that everybody uses, right? But if you go to Shanghai, they're Shanghainese. They're going to start speaking in Shanghainese to each other, and they're going to have their own foods, they're in their own history. Yeah. You go to Beijing, okay, cool. You got some Mandarin there. If you go to Guangzhou, <laughs> you know, you're going to be speaking Guangdonghua, and it's a, it's a different world, and they have different culture and a different history. And some parts of China are actually newer than other parts of China, and some parts are older. And some parts have got deep histories that interconnect with other parts, and other parts haven't touched each other until modern times. I think if you go to China, you've got to have that, like, I'm visiting Europe mindset. I'm going to see a lot of different places and a lot of different cultures. And people are going to kind of look similar, but maybe you're going to be surprised when you see guys that are six foot six in Beijing or up in the <laughs> north. And, you're going to, you know, and they're not five foot eight like they're down south and people are going to be speaking dialects and they're going to be eating different cuisines and they're going to have different attitudes and all sorts of stuff so again i think you need to have that open mind and a lot of patience we are also finishing this conversation so do you have anything else you want to add to this conversation based on what we just talked about the friends the basic situation and mindset. Uh, look, I, I have a deep and abiding love for China. So um, just go, visit, explore, all right? Go there, take, take your open mind and go and visit. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID and travel restrictions, that ain't gonna happen for a while. But um, at rock bottom, every person is still a person, regardless of culture. 
So I hope that people will be open-minded enough to, that they will explore with an honest, open heart that, that there's good people everywhere. Actually, most people are good. Yeah, this is why <laughs> I started this podcast. People are people, right? Like you cannot put a label on 1.4 billion people. That's just too much. It's hard enough to put one point on two people. <laughs> All right, you can make big, you can make big reductionist generalizations. Lots of people have black hair and dark eyes in China. Cool, All right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't really tell you much about their character. True. And it takes a bit to, you know, we, we're never going to know a, a billion people. We're going to know a handful of people. And most of those people are going to be pretty good. And you won't get to know them until you actually go there. So when you get the chance, take it, do it, go. Well, thank you so much to have this, to have this conversation with me. <laughs> and well, thank you. Thank you, Temperance. Uh, I hope the podcast goes well for you. And um, I hope you enjoy pushing it forward. Day, day, up, up. Or is it up, up, day, day? <laughs> it, oh, this is a Chinese saying. We call it uh, good, good, steady, day, day, up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll leave you to it. Day, day, up. Yeah. Bye for now. Okay. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Welcome to reach out and share your valuable feedback and comment. Looking forward to hearing from you. By the way, right now is the year of Ox in Chinese lunar calendar. I wish you a great year ahead and a lot of harvest. See you next time. Bye.